Yes, you are not tuned into the wrong podcast by mistake. That is, in fact, the iconic song, My City Was Gone by The Pretenders. Of course, that is not the usual 80s aesthetic vaporwave music to which we usually intro our show, but you may all recognize that tune very well from the legendary, the late, unfortunately, the late, great Rush Limbaugh of the Rush Limbaugh Show. How else could we open this episode other than paying tribute to the absolute goat of talk radio? I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And this is episode number nine of The Right Take. And man, oh man, this is another one of those where, you know, every now and then you see the news of a celebrity death. And sometimes it's a beloved actor. Sometimes it's a great uh, game show host. And then you get one like this, where this one really did hurt a lot when I saw that news. A friend actually messaged me a split second before I saw the headline suddenly pop up on Fox News that Rush Limbaugh had died at the age of 70 after an extended battle with lung cancer. And um, yeah, I'll be honest. I'll be completely honest. I cried. Uh, they were manly tears, I promise. They were manly tears. But this was this was rough. I mean... Where do you even begin? His name is Rush Limbaugh. His name is synonymous with talk radio as far as I'm concerned. And it occurred to me that because he he first came to prominence, he first started doing radio in like the 70s. He'd been in the gig for a while. He didn't really rise to national prominence until, say, the late 80s and early 90s. And it occurred to me that realistically, without Rush – there would be no genre of political commentary in our media today. And I'm not just talking about radio here. You know, I grew up listening to – obviously, I did listen to Rush Limbaugh in high school, full disclosure. Pretty much since my sophomore year when I first started driving and I would drive my truck to school every day because I've lived in California. So it would be about 9 in the morning or so. That's right when Rush Limbaugh was on the radio. I would listen to him for only about 15 minutes, give or take however long the drive was, to the point that sometimes I would – when I pulled into the school parking lot and the bell hadn't rung yet – I would stop and just sit in my truck and listen to the remainder of whatever he had to say before the next commercial break just because I wanted to hear what he had to say. But I also in high school, I would watch uh, Bill O'Reilly. I would watch Sean Hannity on Fox News. I ate up all that political commentary stuff. But it occurred to me that even in the world of TV, the O'Reilly's and the Hannity's to you know what we have today, the Tuckers, none of that was really a thing. Or at least it was – at the very least it was not in high demand before Rush Limbaugh. Did anybody really ever say before Rush, oh yeah, I want to sit down and listen to someone give me their opinion for an hour on politics? No, no. He was he was to talk radio what John Wayne was to Westerns. Exactly. And he set the standard. He set the groundwork for everything that would follow. I, I like to think that podcasting, like what we're doing right now, is the spiritual successor to radio in a lot of ways. And there would be no podcasting if it weren't for talk radio. And there would be no talk radio were it not for Rush Limbaugh. So I, I kind of still, honestly, still can't even believe he's gone. Especially, well, I mean, he was. I knew, he, of course, he was. Everyone knew he was diagnosed last year with lung cancer. So it was kind of uh, ex- expected to some. You know, it's kind of like whenever if you have a have a loved one who's diagnosed with uh, with a terminal disease, you can kind of begin to prepare yourself. I'm not not comparing Rush to a loved one, but you can kind of prepare yourself mentally that the fact that they're not going to be around much longer. But it's, I don't know. It's just it, honestly, it was almost like in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, "Oh well, they'll beat this. You know, they'll be around for a few more years. It it, it won't. You know, it's not going to be anytime soon." So, uh, but yeah, I was in, I was not expecting uh, expecting him to pass this soon. To be honest, I knew I knew it was gonna it was gonna come eventually because uh, it's it's hard to beat it's hard to beat that stuff. But uh, yeah, I was a little a little surprised it came this early. Yeah, yeah, it was. A little over a year after he announced his diagnosis, actually, and I believe it was actually the day after he announced his diagnosis was when uh, President Trump invited him to the State of the Union for that absolutely legendary moment where Melania, First Lady Melania, awarded him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It was just an absolutely incredible sight. And I, of course, have a – for those of you who don't know, I actually had the high honor and distinct privilege – of being mentioned on air by El Rushbo back in the day. It was actually February 20th of 2020, so just under one year before the day he would die. 
I had written an article for American Greatness, one of my daily news articles, about how then-candidate – this is how long ago it was – a guy who was running for president at the time by the name of Michael Bloomberg. He was one of the 527 Democrats running for the nomination at the time, was being called out for uh, apparently being dismissive of the trans agenda, the transgenderism nonsense back when he was mayor because he was a more moderate mayor of New York. And Rush talked about this on the air. I have the transcript here because, you know, it's hard to come by the actual clips because, you know, they're, they're all archived and whatnot. But on his website, he would transcribe like every single segment. So he had this great nickname for Bloomberg. He called him Doomberg. And he starts off saying, well, everybody's jumping on Doomberg. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you care. I just found out that Andrew, move him to the higher ground, Yang, has been hired as commentator by CNN. Oh, you knew that? I didn't know that. Yeah, we're getting the money out of politics. Then he goes on to say, American greatness has a piece. Eric Lendrum. Apparently, you know, Bloomberg is being vetted. He's getting a media anal. He's getting a media <laughs> anal exam that he's never had before. He's getting a media anal as though he is a Republican. You know why? Because he ran as a Republican to get elected mayor of New York. Apparently, more comments have emerged by Doomberg likely to create problems for him. The Daily Caller is reporting that Doomberg has been targeting transgender Americans. And I remember I was in a, a Facebook group uh, at this time, a very big Facebook group with a bunch of friends, and one of them had posted in the group chat. I, of course, had no idea of this. I obviously don't have a car. I don't listen to radio anytime soon, so I don't really have the luxury of being able to listen to Rush anytime soon. A friend of mine posted in the group chat just suddenly one of those like big highlighted caption posts that kind of stands out. It pops with the colors and it says, I could swear I just heard Rush Limbaugh cite an article by Eric Lindrum on the air. And I'm like, no way. Shut up. Stop. No way he did. And he's like, yeah, he definitely did. And it was about Michael Bloomberg and transgender. And I was like, oh, my That's God. The one. <laughs> oh, my God. It's this. It's this one. And then sure enough. Yep. Eventually the transcription was posted and it is there. And I will never forget. That. It was one of the proudest moments of my entire life. I will never forget it. And it's it still is it still kind of hurts honestly it still is by far the, the biggest thing that happened and one of the biggest blows i think this is the first big real gut punch since the election certainly that right after we lose such a great president to the voter fraud we lose one of the greats of the right as we know it for the last 30 years pretty much right on par with the end of the reagan era was right along when rush limbaugh came along yeah it really is when you think of it he he represented an entire political era because he came on the scene right as soon as the Reagan era was ending, and then he carried it all the way through the – continued to show all the way through the Trump era. And then just as Trump leaves office, then he leaves the scene as well. So in, in many ways, it, this the, – the time from – you could say roughly 1988 to 2020 was the Rush Limbaugh era. Exactly, and that's why actually that – ties in perfectly to the one one tribute I want to highlight in particular. So, of course, we are just glance over this. We knew that the left was going to celebrate when he died because that's the kind of – I almost want to say people, but they're not really people. Well, that's the kind of vermin that they are. They were celebrating with all the hashtags and whatnot. We all knew this was coming. We weren't surprised by it. Let's not give them any more oxygen because that's exactly what they want. But to his credit, there was one blue check lefty on Twitter who actually paid tribute to Rush Limbaugh in a genuinely thought-provoking way, and, and I think an accurate way. Chris Hayes of MSNBC, who said, quote, I think Newt Gingrich, Rush Limbaugh, and Donald Trump are three of the five most important and influential conservative figures in American life over the past three decades, along with Ailes, that's Roger Ailes, and Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, the guys who created Fox News. The conservatism we have is the conservatism they have forged. And that really is so true. You've got the, the kind of the triad there of Limbaugh, of the media guys. You have Rush with the radio. You have Ailes and Murdoch with Fox News. And then on the political side, again, this is the last 30 years, so this is the post-Reagan era. You have the two big political conservative figures. Obviously, no one cares for the Bushes or any of the Republican nominees who came and went in that era. The biggest po Republican politician post-Reagan and pre-Trump was Newt Gingrich, who led the historic 1994 Republican Revolution. That was the first time Republicans took back the House of Representatives in 50 years. And then, of course, you have Donald Trump, who is the kingmaker of the American right and the Republican Party right now. So I think that's absolutely accurate. Uh, thank you, Chris Hayes, for being respectable. Again, coming from MSNBC and having a blue check mark, I did not expect that. So the, even with the biggest names, people are already talking, of course, who could possibly take that coveted noon to three slot? Who can be the next Rush Limbaugh? There is going to be no next Rush Limbaugh. You have your big names that maybe come somewhat close, whether it's Hannity or Mark Levin. 
But none of them can hold a candle to Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is – he is radio. You know, he is – what Tom Brady is to football, Rush Limbaugh is to radio. That is just it, plain and simple. He yeah. is the GOAT, the greatest of all time, and he always will be. And Well, yeah, like, a, like I compared him to John Wayne after John Wayne passed, I'm sure a lot of people wondered who's going to be the next John Wayne? Who's going to step it up and be that, uh, you know, that iconic cowboy, that iconic Western figure in American cinema? And uh, there really there was no one. There, you know, there was no one after John Wayne passed. He was the American Western icon, and in many ways, Rush Limbaugh was the uh, the conservative icon. Uh, and there will be no uh, no Rush. You know, there will be no one to take his place to take that twelve to three. I guess the Eastern time zone, the noon to three slot. Uh, they'll have you know they'll eventually fill it, but it'll never reach the same level of listeners that it did under Rush. Um, because and uh, I think a big reason for that is because. You think about Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, these these other you know, Ben Shapiro, conservative talk radio, uh, conservative podcasters. Most of them come from the coast. Most of them come from major urban area, um, major cities and stuff. That's right. Rush Limbaugh was from uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. You know, really the the cream of the crop when it comes to heartland America. And so you know he cut his teeth in Pittsburgh. And this is the thing. Uh, this is really what set um, set Rush Limbaugh apart. He came from from Missouri. He Got got his career started in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and so he, in many ways, knew how to relate to the people that he that were listening to him. Yeah. But Limbaugh, Rush, Rush Limbaugh, cared about the issues that we cared about, that Middle America, that Heartland America cared about. He was never an elitist, even when he became the most listened to radio host of all time for for decades. He still never forgot who he was, and he ever never forgot what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. Right, right. He was able to – and in many ways he represented the exact opposite of what the news media represented. So in a way he was able to bring the news to middle America who had given up on the news because at the time in the 90s, in the, that was kind of when people in middle America just kind of tuned out the news. They stopped reading the New York Times, those that had ever read it. Uh, they stopped reading USA Today. They kind of turned away from the from all the coastal major legacy news outlets and – they kind of, you know, they just kind of tuned out, and Rush Limbaugh was able to take that news, chop it up in language they understood, and present it to him. Um, and and the reason why, even if it was, a, he could just read a news story without providing any commentary, and they would listen to him because, as opposed to say Tom Brokaw or someone from the coast, they could tell it was being delivered by someone who actually cared about them and not someone who was as detached as uh, as someone living in a foreign country. Yeah, he just had that special way that it was so unique too that he. He was so casual that it was special. He wasn't finely polished like a, a good political radio host. Like, you know, when Mike Pence was a radio host, for example, he was very clean and polished. And he isn't screaming and getting loud like a Mark Levin does. When Mark Levin goes off, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and not saying that's a bad thing, <laughs> yep, but he wasn't like callers. that. But exactly. But Rush was just so casual, even to the point that I always loved this listening to him. When He likes to print off all of his articles right for show prep. He prints it off. He has the big printer in the office right there. You'll hear it whirring. And when he's flipping the pages, when he gets to the next page, he will stop talking and you will literally hear the sound of him flipping the paper and the <laughs> yeah, rustling yeah. of the paper in the microphone. I'm just like, I love it so much. He's He was just, God, I'm getting emotional again. It was, it was so great. Rest in peace, Rush Limbaugh. We would not be here without you. And we will do whatever we can. We on our humble little podcast here, we'll do what we can to carry on your legacy. So we have a great show for you guys today. There's a lot on this one, a lot of woke madness on this episode today. We will talk about why you should not drink Coca-Cola anymore. And no, it's not for health reasons. We will talk about how Biden is inadvertently kind of turning the left against itself when it comes to certain key issues such as student loan debt. And of course, we will talk about Cancun Cruz. We will talk about Ted Cruz's not-so-smart decision to go to Mexico in the midst of Texas going through an ice age. So, Jacob, you want to get us started on this one? Okay, so why we should give up Coca-Cola. I'm reading off of Newsweek. Coca-Cola facing backlash says, quote, be less white. Learning plan was about workplace inclusion. This was an internal whistleblower that, uh, that leaked screenshots of diversity training materials in the materials, it encourages staff to, quote, try to be less white. It says, on Friday, Carlin Borisenko, an activist who supports banning critical race theory, shared images from an internal whistleblower of the company's online racism training. The slides included tips to learners on how to be less white, less arrogant, less certain, less defensive, less ignorant, and more humble. Because we know that arrogance, certainty, defensiveness 
ignorance and humility are all aspects of whiteness. And if we want to end racism and create a more equitable society, we need to train white people not to, to be less arrogant, less certain, less defensive, less ignorant and more humble. So, quote, in the U.S. and other Western nations, white people are socialized to feel this is a, from their slideshow. This is from the, the training they provided to their employees. In the U.S. and other Western nations, white people are socialized to feel that they are inherently superior because they are white. Research shows that by age three to four, children understand that it is better to be white. So Koch responded to this. It says a Coca-Cola spokesperson confirmed that the course is, quote, part of a learning plan to help build an inclusive workplace, but also noted that, quote, the videos circulating on social media is from a publicly available LinkedIn learning series and is not the focus of our company's curriculum. Now, the LinkedIn learning series is from Robin D'Angelo's uh, her critical race theory book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And this is what this is what Coca-Cola is taking their training from. All right. So the spokesperson goes on. Our Better Together Global Learning Curriculum is part of a learning plan to help build an inclusive workplace. It is comprised of a number of short vignettes, each a few minutes long. The training includes access to LinkedIn learning on a variety of topics, including on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the company, of course, was referring to the YouTube video that was shared online by Borisenko during which she discusses and displays the screenshots from the LinkedIn training course by American bestseller Robin D'Angelo. Okay, so this is something that took off after the killing of George, the death of George Floyd. Um, it, so th these people, their their organization was very impressive. As soon as the after the riots took off, you had massive all these activist outlets. They immediately started putting out a co very coordinated uh, set of screenshots to Instagram influencers, to Facebook influencers, to ma to major uh, social media. Well, I don't know if you can call them uh, basically Facebook activists, and they all started sharing these these talking points. And they were – it was basically trying to teach white people how to de – I guess uh, make them de-racify themselves. I guess that was that's a word. Trying to get white people to stop being racist. And the religiosity behind this was, was very, very similar, interestingly enough, to evangelical Christianity because one of the things, if you go and listen to what these people say and you read what they, what they put out, they would always start out with the first thing that white people need to do is recognize that you have white privilege. That's the first that's the first step. Once you recognize that you have white privilege, then you can move on to become an anti-racist. And it's almost like a religious conversion. You know, if, if you're a person, if an evangelical Christian is trying to get someone to become a Christian, one of the things that they would always say is if you, you know, if you want to come to know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, the first thing you need to do is admit that you're a sinner. This is the first step to to embracing Christianity, to becoming a Christian. And it's the same way with this this kind of propaganda. The first thing you want to do if you want to become an anti-racist is to admit and recognize that you have white privilege. Once you've recognized that you're at fault for being white and being raised in a white society, then you can move on and make progress and we can eventually move toward a more equitable society. So this is Coca-Cola, you know, the, the iconic American corporation based in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's uh, teaching its white employees how not to be racist. And of course, it's uh, training them that this research this, – so what they do uh, regarding this research, and um, this this has always been the case with the left, they'll have a goal, a societal goal. You know, Let's say in this case it's ending racism. So that's their goal, ending racism. They, It's not that they all get in a room and huddle together and say this is how we're going to accomplish this. They're profess the professors who hold these views, they hold the same views, so they're able to coordinate by coming up with research – that benefits the social activist, that the social activist can then draw on and say, oh, look, research shows that white people begin to become racist by age three to four. By age three to four, white children are already starting to see that they are that they are superior to black people. That's allegedly that that's what they're trying to show. And it's the same thing. Racist saw, babies, right? Right, racist babies. And this is we saw the same kind of social research in the Brown v. Board of Education uh, case uh, that overturned racial segregation in schools back in 1954. So what they did is they used a study by a Swedish sociologist, and he put black children in a room and offered um, you know black dolls and white dolls and said in certain number of cases, in the majority of time, these black children, these black babies, you know, essentially toddlers, they'll reach and grab the white doll because they – and they he tried to allege this shows that society has inculcated black children to feel – that white children are better, that being white is better, and that's why the black baby reaches for the white doll as opposed to the I, black doll. I seriously doubt that, but at the same time, it proves that this is just one more aspect of clown world. We're literally taking our advice or our recommendations on how to deal with such tough socio-cultural political issues 
from the experiences of babies. Correct, correct, correct. But they've sent, there's since been numerous studies that debunk that. Like they would put a white baby in a room and offer them black dolls, white dolls. The white baby would reach and grab the black doll and play with the black doll. You know, children, they don't – they just want to play. They don't, they don't recognize this stuff. But if they're able to show – if the research, so-called research from the experts are able to show that by age three to four, white children are starting to become racist, then in, in their minds, we have to – we have to recruit all of the corporations. We have to recruit all of the all of academia, all of the institutions, the sports world. Every institution needs to get on board uh, with deprogramming white people to help white people realize that by being white, by being raised in America, being white in America, they are inherently racist. That being white, it, to be white is to be racist. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about whenever we mentioned the Morgan Wallen. In a previous episode, we mentioned the Morgan Wallen situation. We played that clip by Jimmy Allen, how he mentioned that you've got people whose parents taught them that they are superior to black people. you got white people whose parents taught them that they are superior to black people. Citation it, needed. Right, right. You know, he provides no citation. And he's talked about how uh, you know movies and Hollywood and everything, it reinforces this by showing, how, uh, showing black criminals. And so these people that have no access to black people, their parents teach them that they're superior to black people. And they watch movies in which black people are criminals and they – and voila, they happen to uh, become raised to be racist. And you know, this is obviously – it's hilarious. It's, like, it, it's so ridiculous that it's, it's beyond hilarious. But – when you have a company like Coca-Cola that's forcing its white employees to sit down and be lectured to and basically be deprogrammed, this is something that you would see like in communist China. I guess if someone is raised in a Muslim household or a Christian household in communist China and they get a job in a major Chinese corporation, I can see the Chinese corporation sitting them down saying, OK, we've got to deprogram you from your religiosity so you can think more like a Chinese communist. This is this kind of stuff. Like we, we haven't even had a communist revolution in this country, and we've already got the corporations are basically becoming the revolution themselves. So, yeah, I, I just um, – uh, I, I guess this means we're Team Pepsi now, right? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, do, you mean, do you mean because Pepsi sold its products in communist countries back in the – during the Cold War? Is that, what you're, is that what you're referring to? I'm just saying as long as they're not Coca-Cola, as long as Pe- – until we get proof that Pepsi is doing something even remotely close to what Coke is doing right now, I will support Pepsi over Coke just out of principle. Oh, OK. Um, I, got, I got you. I thought you meant, meant that Coca-Cola was now acting like te- Team Pepsi by becoming communist. No, no, no. I, I will turn to Team Pepsi solely out of opposition to – no, are you kidding me? How dare they? All right? Imagine again. I know I do this a lot, but just imagine if Coca-Cola released some kind of training saying we need our employees to be less black. Can well, you imagine that, what would happen? That, that's a point. That's actually a point that Candace Owens made. She said if a corporate, she tweeted if a corporate company sent around a training kit instructing black people on how to be less black, the world would implode and lawsuits would follow. And she 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 makes a very very important point. She says, I genuinely hope these employees sue Coca-Cola for blatant racism and discrimination. And this is the thing. This is a violation of the Civil Rights Act. Coca-Cola cannot legally do this. What they're doing isn't just ethically wrong. It's illegal. They can legally be sued for discrimination against white people. The Civil Rights Act, it bans this. It makes this kind of behavior illegal. Oh, wouldn't it, that be the greatest thing ever if the Civil Rights Act is used in favor of white people? Well, well, the thing is every single corporation in the country right now that has adopted anti-racist training and it's a sensitivity training – well, every any corporation – Anti-racist translated to anti-white. Correct, correct. Any corporation, any institution, any government agency that uses critical race theory, any, any uh, university that uses critical race theory is at risk of being sued under the Civil Rights Act for racial discrimination. Uh, all it takes is a white person with the cojones to grab a lawyer and step up to the plate and actually do something with their, you know, with their knowledge of the law. Unfortunately, uh, most white people, they've been trained in universities to hate themselves. So they're going to sit through these anti-racism training sessions and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm racist. I need to, I need to deprogram myself. And someone tweeted out a picture of this. Uh, this, I don't know. Did you, do you remember when uh, Trump claimed he was going to ban critical race theory? And there was this image that went out of this very heavy set black lady who was lecturing those white people on critical race theory and explaining how all the, white people are racist. Yeah. So someone tweeted out, say, you know, the problem with this picture, it's not the lady giving the lecture. It's all the people sitting there being talked down to. And this is it. You know, you, and th- this is going to kind of tie into the, the later topic we talk about student loans. People go into debt and they have a dream to be, go into corporate America. They finally get the job 
And then all of a sudden they're told, oh, by the way, if you're white, you're going to go through this. Uh, we, need you, we need all of you to go through anti-racist critical race theory training. What are you going to do? You know, you're making you're making 70 grand a year. You just spent you spent all your years in college building up to this moment. You're not going to throw that job away. And so that's is, that's even worse than the people who actually are brainwashed into believing it is those who go in knowing this is crap, knowing that this isn't legitimate, that this is racist against white people. But they either don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to lose their social life. They still want to be able to hang out with their friends. They still want to meet girls who agree with this stuff. So they just keep their mouth shut and they go along with it. Be, all know. knowing that otherwise they get fired and they lose all of that. I don't know. You know, no, to me, no job is worth uh, self-respect. No girl is worth self-respect. No, uh, you know, no, no friends. If they're truly your friends, then they're not gonna, they're not gonna want you to have to put yourself through all this. But you know, Candace Owens is right. There's, none of this stuff is gonna stop. We live in a litigious society. None of this is gonna stop. It's not gonna stop by electing a Republican president. It's not going to stop by electing a Republican Congress. The only thing that's going to make these corporations stop is if they're forced to in a court of law. So if in Kava, I don't, are you, you're, you're familiar with the restaurant Kava around D.C., correct? Yeah, it's a Mediterranean thing, right? Yeah, yeah. so they put out a post on Instagram about a month ago, I want to say, and they were bragging about how in 2020 they reduced the or they increased the percentage of non-white employees by from like sixty percent to seventy two percent or seventy eight percent in twenty twenty, basically bragging that they had decreased the percentage of white employees that they have at their restaurant. So any white employee who lost his or her job from at Kava in twenty twenty has a clear cut case of racial discrimination because they essentially admitted we purposely reduced the percentage of white employees at our company. And really, this stuff, none of this stuff is going to stop until white people decide that they want it to stop. The only thing that's keeping this going are a bunch of lack, a bunch of lazy, lackadaisical, wimpy white men who go through this stuff and refuse to sue. So, okay, you know, you want to, I don't work at Coca Cola. I don't, I, I had my fill of sodas whenever I worked in fast food in college. And, you know, you had unlimited access to soda. So I can't even, I can't even drink. So I probably have, one soda every six months. Yeah, I myself have been working on transitioning away from dark sodas in favor of like Sprite or Sunkist or quote unquote clear sodas, which are still not great for you, but not as bad for you as just the straight up dark stuff. Yeah, when I do have a soda, usually it's a Mexican soda because their their soda is so much better than American soda. Anyway. Oh my god! And out of a glass bottle, it's it's absolutely heaven. Yeah. So if anything, I support. Coke for doing this because maybe it will decrease obesity among American <laughs> white people, uh, especially in the South. Maybe if if uh, Southerners, <laughs> if white Southerners start getting wind of this, hey, you know what, Coca Cola, they don't they don't like us. Maybe they'll stop drinking. But uh, whatever whatever it takes to increase health and health care in America. You know you know one thing too that I, I love about this. You, you mentioned a little while ago that they said among the things that define whiteness are humility. They said that was <laughs> yeah. one of them. Whenever they do this stuff. They inadvertently make whiteness sound awesome. Like yeah, I remember the, uh, the when that uh, it was the National Museum of American uh, African American History, the one right here in D.C., right by the Washington Monument. They put out that big uh, illustrated, what do you call it? I guess you could call it propaganda. It was several different sheets, like pamphlets, advertising. Here is whiteness and how we need to break it down. It was a multi-sheet thing, literally saying whiteness includes hard work personal responsibility, family values, like literally just listing, hey, all this stuff that is conservatism or like traditional values, that's all just whiteness. Like Josh Hawley criticized him. He called him out. This was like early 2020 or maybe it was late 2019, I think. And Josh Hawley called them out to the point where they actually deleted it from their website and issued like a retraction and apology. But they bash whiteness saying, oh, whiteness are these good things like humility and personal responsibility and hard work. And I'm like, and you are implying that's a bad thing? Are, are you implying those are bad things? Or are you inadvertently saying whiteness is a good thing? Like they're sending mixed messages here that do not back up their core argument at all. Well, I don't. I think the argument. I think the argument they're trying to make is that non-blacks apparently have stereotypes about black people that they're not these things. I think that's the argument they're trying to make, and they're saying that instead of refuting the stereotypes, instead they're just going to take the easy way out and say, okay, well, if you are these things, then then you're you're bad. I, th- I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of hard to follow. They they change their they change their tactics every every two months to uh, you know just basically put their finger to the wind and see how they can make political gains. But I will say just one last thing on this story before we move on. I read the the Newsweek article because Newsweek was the only non right leaning news source that covered this story, and I've noticed a pattern during the Hunter Biden scandal. 
Newsweek was the only non-conservative media outlet that spent any time covering the story, which I thought was kind of strange. You know, I mean, Newsweek, they did change ownership. I think it was 2018. And I checked uh, allsides, allsides.com. It's a media, it's a media a bias checker. And they actually switched Newsweek's bias from left-leaning or from center-left to center in December of last year. So, but which uh, kind of does it does show that you know apparently Newsweek they're trying to fill the gap. There's so much most me- media outlets are all left to center or far left. So maybe Newsweek is kind of seeing there's a little bit of a market for some more unbiased reporting, which is uh, which is kind of good to see because no other main news outlet covered the story because it doesn't it doesn't look good. <laughs> this this story about Coke Coke didn't want this to get out. This was a whistleblower inside Coke that released this, so it doesn't make critical race theory look good by this coming out. Speaking of things that make the left look bad, Joe Biden giving a public appearance of any kind. (laughs) So he did his first town hall as president with, of course, CNN, and he covered a wide range of topics. Believe it or not, topics beyond such pressing issues as the the color scheme on Air Force One or what kind of flavor of ice cream he had today. He actually was asked about fairly important issues including this issue, which matters a lot to the millennials, the a.k.a. a lot of Bernie voters who were convinced ultimately to swallow the pill and vote for Joe Biden. I want you to meet uh, Jocelyn Fish, a Democrat from Racine. Jocelyn is the director of marketing for a community theater. Jocelyn, welcome. Your question. Hello. Good evening, Mr. President. Student loans are crushing my family, friends, and fellow Americans. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) The American dream is to succeed, but how can we fulfill that dream when debt is many people's only option for a degree? We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. We need at least a $50,000 minimum. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. (laughs) It depends on whether or not you go to a private university or a public university. It depends on the idea that I say to a community, I'm going to forgive the debt, the billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale and Penn and schools. My children, I went to a great school. I went to a state school. So so the argument he's making here, which uh, the look on her face, you see it for a moment, a flash in her eyes. The moment he says, I'm not going to do that. But she has to keep her composure because she's on national TV. But like, oh, he just crushed this girl's dreams. Which I mean, this is this is one thing about Biden. At least he's direct and honest. Like whenever he was to giving that speech to the the troops, (laughs) they didn't clap. Clap, stupid bastard. You stupid bastard. He's got his arms folded. Like I got to give credit to his medical team. They really drugged him up well for this performance. (laughs) He he actually sounds very coherent. Yeah, yeah, you can't actually at least understand what he's saying but the the <laughs> argument so the argument he's making he's at least he is being consistent because he never uh, this is thing I, I think a lot of bernie supporters thought that just because bernie endorsed him that he was going to adopt all of bernie's policies right medicare for all and all that fun stuff right joe biden never said that he was going to ever give student loan forgiveness to anybody that was never part of his platform and he never claimed that he was going to give fifty thousand dollars in student loan relief to anybody this is like a lot of people are saying you broke your cup no he never broke his promise it was always ten thousand dollars from the beginning and so this 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 lady she's saying you know you promised ten thousand but we need a lot more than that because we're drowning in student loan debt and he's basically nope i'm not i'm not i will not make that happen like it's, it's is he is he a republican now saying pick yourself up by your bootstraps that's that's essentially, <laughs> that's essentially what he's saying well that's that's kind of how he comes off but so his argument is you got to understand it's really difficult for him to understand what life is like in the 21st century so he's still back in the 70s mentally he's still back in the 70s and 80s and so he's thinking the only people who take out student loan debt are those who go to harvard yale you know he says harvard yale penn talking about these more elite schools Mm -hmm. so he doesn't want to offer student loan forgiveness to people who went to elite schools he doesn't want in his mind he's thinking fifty thousand dollars in student debt what are you doing with that much debt if you have that much debt you must have gone to Princeton, and you're fixing to take on a job where you're going to make $350,000 a year. No, we don't need to give you fifty k in student loan forgiveness, which made sense in the 80s and 90s. But this this chick, she didn't – I guarantee you she didn't go to Harvard. She's from Racine, Wisconsin. She didn't go to Yale. She's probably drowning in student loan debt because she went to a state school – promised the you know the american dream if you go to college you take on student loan debt you're going this is going to be your stepping stone into the middle class this is what an entire generation was sold on that every if you don't want to be poor you need to go to college and it's okay if you have to take out loans to get it don't worry about the loans you can always repay it 
but if you don't want to be poor, you need to go to college. And then they major in some useless social studies like, you know, lesbian dance theory or something. Right. But even if they didn't but even if they didn't major in something silly like that, even let's say they majored in uh, you know, science or history or um, even math. So you're looking at a salary of maybe seventy thousand entry level salary of seventy thousand a year. If you've got seventy thousand student loan debt, that's you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a while before you can ever pay that off. And so what's happening is a lot of these people they're going they're they graduate with these with all this debt and they're thinking, okay, well I can start this starting wage that I was promised I was gonna be able to make and they don't start out at seventy thousand. They instead start out at twenty five thousand and that's an internship and then they gotta hop around to a second internship and then a third internship. Finally they get an entry level salary and they're told, Okay, well we can start you off at forty five. They're like, well, I have 65,000 student loans to pay off. Can you at least as part of the signing deal cover some of that? No, no, no. We can, we can, offer, we can offer you 46,000. And so you can understand why some of these people are frustrated with the country, frustrated with the system that they were sold. Because back when their parents went to school, they didn't have to pay all these student loans, and their parents encouraged them to go to college. You know, They encouraged, hey, you need to go to college. Don't worry about student loans and stuff like that. And Biden just doesn't get it because in his mind, it's only the people who go to elite colleges who rack up student debt. The number is actually 0.3 percent of students who went to – of, of the total number of people who have student loan debt that went to elite colleges. So Biden here is saying I'm not going to cover student – I'm not going to forgive student loan debt because of the 0.3 percent who went to elite colleges, and I don't want to – Give them extra money. And he's saying, you know, we need to spend more money on early childhood development. I want to spend the money on community colleges. Um, But is that going to be forgiven rather than use that money to provide for early education for young uh, children who are come from disadvantaged circumstances? But here's what I think. I think everyone and I've been proposing this for four years. Everyone should be able to go to community college for free, for free. That's that's cost nine billion dollars and we should pay for it and the tax policies we have now. We should be able to pay for it. you spend almost that money as a break for people who own racehorses. And I think any family making under one hundred twenty five thousand dollars whose kids go to a state university they get into, that should be free as well. And the thing I do in terms of student debt that's accumulated is provide for changing the existing system now for debt forgiveness if you engage in volunteer activity. For example, if you were, uh, if, if you're teaching school, after five years you'd lo- you'd have fifty thousand dollars of your debt forgiven. If you worked in a uh, battered women's shelter, if you worked and so on, so you'd be able to forgive debt. Thirdly, I ch- I'm going to change the position that we have now to allow for debt forgiveness, this is so hard to calculate, whereby you can now, depending on how much you make and what program you saw, you can work off that debt by the activity you have, and you cannot be charged more than X percent of your take-home pay so that it doesn't affect your ability to buy a car, own a home, etc. Each of my children graduated from school. I mortgaged the house. I was listed as the poorest man in Congress for, not a joke, for over 30 years. And trying to sound uh, relatable. um, But I was able to borrow. I bought a home I spent a lot of time working on, and I was able to sell it uh, for some profit. But my my oldest son graduated uh, after undergraduate and graduate school with uh, $136,000 in debt after working 40, I mean, excuse me, 30 hours a week during school. My other son went to Georgetown and Yale Law School, graduated $142,000 in debt. Okay, so... The, that's obviously referring to, uh, to Hunter, right? Yeah, the one who went to Georgetown and Yale Law School. I imagine that uh, that sweet gig he got at that Ukrainian energy company was more than enough to pay off his student loan. Right, uh, that's the thing. He's trying to sound relatable. You know, he's trying to, trying to make it sound like, you know, hey, my kids have been through the same thing, too. They all had over $100,000 in student loan debt. But, I mean, not everyone gets the opportunity to go to Georgetown or Yale Law School. And so his kids are in the 0.3% of those who had student loan debt after going to an Ivy League – of you know, the whole – the total pool of student loan borrowers who went to an Ivy League school. When you, talk, when you talk about anti-relatable, not everybody has a dad who's a senator for crying out loud. I right, mean, and, and uh, Hunter – so Hunter's first job was as uh, – was at the bank holding company MBNA, which was a major contributor to his father's political campaigns. 
that was his first job. And of course, he it only gets better. Of course, it was. It only gets better from there. I mean, his his resume uh, working at this uh, this bank holding company that gave him the know how in the energy sector. So he was able to go take a nice sweet gig over uh, over on the board of a Ukraine energy company. What uh, he was on the uh, he was Burisma. Made, yeah, Burisma. But in China, also he made like what it was at ten million dollars from uh, from his investments in China. So, you know, it'd be nice if we all had a dad who was a senator that could get us a sweet gig working on the board of an energy company, even if we don't know anything about energy. But, you know, it just that, – that's not our situation. And also, another thing he talks about, he says, you know, we, I'd prefer to use the money for early childhood development, early childhood education, free community college and all this stuff. The thing – it's like there's a certain – it's like he takes the attitude that there's only a certain amount of money that the federal government has. We're not allowed to – you know, spread it around. But the thing about student loan debt is this loan debt is not owned – is not held by banks. The federal government doesn't have to pay anything back. The federal gov- government is owed the money. If the federal government wiped out all student loans tomorrow, with uh, public student loans, with the stroke of a pen, the federal government would not owe one single penny. The taxpayer – when people talk about, well, the taxpayers will be on the hook for this. No, the taxpayers aren't on the hook for anything. All that happens is the edu- the Treasury Department doesn't get paid those student loans that are due. So you just wipe out the student loan debt. The banks aren't owed anything. The, uh, this is something that Obama did that I think was actually a good thing. He divorced the public student loan from the banking system so that the student loans are now owed directly to the Department of Education. All And Biden has the executive – he has the presidential authority to do this. With the stroke of a pen, he can wipe out 100 percent of student loan debt. Now, I'm not saying I – don't, I don't necessarily know that I think that would be the best way to go about it. I think you need to reform the current loan system the way it is because if you it's if you just do that, it's like giving amnesty to illegals who are in the United States and saying, okay, we've solved the the problem with the illegal immigration, but if you keep the border open, it's just going to continue to to magnify. Lindsey Burke of the Heritage Foundation gives the uh, the cringe conservative position on this, and and she argues this is an NBC an op-ed she wrote for NBC News. She essentially makes the argument that we shouldn't give any loan forgiveness to anybody. Because they signed on the on the dotted line, they took out the loans. They should have to pay them all back, without taking into account that these are eighteen year olds who signed on the dotted line. You know, and many times their parents encouraged them to go to college, and did not, you know, did not make sure that they weren't signing on to something they weren't going to be able to pay back. If you eliminate, and the article actually makes a really good, it points out studies that have shown that the reason why the cost of college education has gone up so much is because of the federal government being involved in loans. If you took the federal government out of the loan business, completely eliminated the federal government from student loans, in order to go to college, students would either have to pay out of pocket, they would have to get scholarships, or a family member would have to co-sign for them for a private loan from a bank. That, that would be the only way that anyone could afford college. If they did that, universities would not be able to charge what they're charging now because one of the big arguments that people are making is, okay, well, yeah, we need loan forgiveness, but that doesn't affect – that doesn't really address the main problem, which is the cost of tuition. So if you want to affect the cost of tuition, you want to bring the cost of tuition down to levels that it was back when Joe Biden was a student relative to the consumer price index – the only way to do that is to completely remove the federal government from education. Biden is talking about giving free community college. He's talking about doubling the Pell Grant. He's talking about making college at public universities free for anyone making under 125000 a year. That is only going to cause the cost of tuition to skyrocket even more because universities are driven by incentives. If they know that the federal government is doling out loans to students, they know the federal government is giving Pell Grants to students, they're going to raise the they're going to raise the cost of tuition because they know that students have it to pay. So this is something that uh, this Heritage Foundation lady Lindsay Burke actually gets right, but she doesn't address the main problem which is the stagnation that so many millennials are facing today and this is a broader problem with the Republican Party. This lady should be she should not be a Democrat. She should be a Republican. She's obviously educated, she's obvious she's got a job. She you know, she looks like she's probably about 35 years old. I don't know if she's got a family or not, but she obviously wants to improve herself and move into the middle class. The only reason why she's a Democrat, I guarantee you, is because she looks at the Republican Party and says, why should I vote for them? And this is something that Republicans can't seem to understand, that voting for millennials is transactional. A millennial is not going to give you their vote if you're not going to offer them anything in return. So she looks at Biden and she's like, OK, she's disappointed. Biden isn't going to help her out. But what is the alternative? What exactly are Republicans going to offer her that Joe Biden is not? And if you say, you know, the argument that most Republicans would make is, okay, well, you took out the loans, you pay it back. 
okay, well, that's you can make that argument if you want. She's not going to vote for you. You're going to lose her vote. So if you lose elections, then don't wonder why you lost elections. You basically told a huge segment of an entire generation to go screw off, that you're not going to provide them with any relief. Because understand, this is a problem of government. Government offered these loans to people. It's Imagine if the government decided they want to increase housing ownership. And so they offered they, – they built a bunch, of, a bunch of houses, and they offered people loans without – regardless of their ability to, to repay those loans to, uh, to pay for mortgages. And then these people, they don't have jobs. They don't have skills. They take out the loans to buy these houses. They get in the house, and they can't pay the loans back. And so now they're in debt for the rest of their life. To take the attitude as, well, you know, you, you signed on the dotted line. Nobody forced you to take out those loans. you got to pay it back. That doesn't take into account that the government basically conned them into taking out those loans by promising them – basically promising them the keys to the middle class when there, there is no middle class to enter into because the government helped destroy the middle class. So this is something that Republicans are going to have to figure out, have to address. They're going to have to offer something to these people who own student loans, and they're going to need to reform the education system in America if they expect to win in 2024. And speaking of things that Republicans could do a lot better in terms of future outreach to their voters, or at the very least not pissing off their voters, like Teddy the Zodiac Killer Cancun <laughs> Cruise. I, uh, I've got thoughts about this one, Jacob. So for those of you who didn't know, Texas is kind of going through an ice age right now, I guess. The, all that, that Green New Deal energy sources like wind turbines and whatnot – kind of froze in the cold weather, which means a lot of Texans don't have their power right now. They don't have heat. They don't have electricity. And so what does Senator Ted Cruz of Texas decide to do? Cancun sounds pretty nice this time of year, I suppose. Cancun Cruise. Cancun Cruise. Cancun Cruise went on a Cancun Cruise, or was going to, until he was photographed at the airport leaving with his family with great big, very heavily packed luggage. So he's been blasted for this just all over the place, and I think rightfully so. Um, and he issued an apology. He said, oh, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. And I'm seeing a lot of mixed reactions on the right as to whether or not this is actually a big deal or if the people are blowing this out of proportions. Um, I think the short answer is, is this a big deal? No. Is this itself a big deal? No. But the fallout from it and the discussion that needs to be had as a result of this is i mean first off he's a senator okay when you're a member of congress you don't have control over anything you're not an executive you're not a governor and you're not a president so no there's nothing cruz himself can do to switch the power back on in texas that's that's not part of his jurisdiction that's not part of his uh, authority but this shows a double whammy of poor judgment on his part that a he saw this as proper to do that he would not even imagining that he wouldn't get caught that's problem number one problem number two apparently not comprehending that if he did get caught this would look really bad and three once he did get caught he apologized at that point when you get caught you might as well just double down and not apologize like matt gates said matt gates tweeted ted cruz should not have apologized yep. and that's true and did, did trump ever once apologize for golfing of course not this to me is important because this is proof that Ted Cruz has no position being a national leader in the party going forward. And this is only because a lot of people look to him as a possible frontrunner for the 2024 nomination for the Republican Party in the event that President Trump does not run again. So just one example of this. Breitbart had an article with a poll showing that when Trump is taken out of the equation, 21 percent of primary voters would go for Mike Pence, former vice president, and 10% would then go for Ted Cruz, followed by 8% for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and another 8% for Donald Trump Jr. So and, and I think th there's a number of reasons for that. Obviously, I, I call it it's just the uh, the runner up default that if, you got to remember Cruz was the runner up of the 2016 primaries. He was the top guy positioned to possibly beat Donald Trump. And then, of course, he didn't. That's just kind of a default thing in American electoral politics, especially in recent years. What people don't remember is that in the year 2000, when George W. Bush won the nomination, the runner up. For that year was a fellow by the name of John McCain, who then eight years later went on to be the Republican nominee. And you know who the runner up of the 2008 Republican primaries was? Mitt Romney. So then four years later, Mitt Romney. So it's just kind of a continuing cycle that for that reason alone, Cruz is seen as kind of a default top tier choice. 
And I think this is the proof that he should not be considered anything remotely close to a national leader for the party, even in the post-Trump era, even if Trump never runs again. Because, A, he obviously doesn't understand optics. Optics (laughs) is so important. It's so important, folks. And he just doesn't get it. But this opens the door, I think, to discussion on a lot of issues with Ted Cruz beyond the optics. Even if this Cancun thing never happened, they would have found something else, some other bad PR stunt to criticize him for. But I digress. We were talking, Jacob, and you and I were talking about this offline the other day. What is Ted Cruz's brand of politics? I actually, I think if nothing else, he is just a, a very shoddy attempt at blending the Tea Party with the Make America Great Again, America First, Donald Trump movement. Because, of course, he wasn't elected in 2010 as part of the Tea Party wave. He was elected two years later in 2012, but he was a big Tea Party guy. He was seen as kind of the, the guy who spearheaded the 2013 government shutdown, the showdown between House Republicans and Obama. And obviously he was very anti-Trump up until Trump became president, which is how, that's how funny how that works for a lot of guys. But he then became a big supporter of President Trump. And even after President Trump left office, he still has been mostly supportive of him. But as we talked about in our previous episode, there are just so many fundamental differences between MAGA and the Tea Party. So a blend just is not going to work. On paper, you would think it works, but in practice, it just does not work. Yeah, so Cruz Cruz got elected at a time when America – when the Republican Party was transitioning away from neoconservatism and toward a more traditional paleoconservative, albeit fiscal fiscal conservative, uh, stance on on the issues. And so – Ted Cruz came along. Ted Cruz was a fiscal hawk. He was a strict uh, constitutionalist. And he steps into the scene just as we're moving out of the neocon era. But in many ways, his foreign policy was no different than that of George W. Bush's. Now, I think he might have uh, been opposed to the Iraq war. I I would have to go back and check that. It didn't really really come up because it wasn't as big of an issue in 2012. But Cruz stepped on the scene. He was the only – I believe he was the only Senate candidate other than Rand Paul – who was endorsed by Ron Paul. So Cruz was supposed to be the bridge between traditional conservative Republicans and the libertarian Ron Paulians. Because at the time, there was kind of a, a rift. Ron Paul supporters didn't really know if they wanted to stick with the GOP. Like they were, they supported Ron Paul, but they didn't know if they wanted to keep voting Republican. They were just, many of them came out of the Libertarian Party. Many of them were apolitical. And then, so the Republicans were trying to reach out to these new voters, kind of pull them in, to kind of uh, shave over some of the rough edges. And Ted Cruz was supposed to be that guy. He was the guy that was going to bridge the gap between the Ron Paul Libertarians and the mainstream Republican Party. And so even from the very start, Cruz was trying to straddle two sides of a fence that simply couldn't be straddled. And so when he gets into office, he, he and Rand Paul disagree on foreign policy, even though they're both part of the Tea Party. And now that the Tea Party and fiscal conservatism has fallen out of favor, now Cruz is trying to straddle both sides of the fence, still be a fiscal conservative hawk, still be a Tea Party guy, and then still be a, a MAGA supporter. And the, like you said, the two just don't blend. But beyond that, speaking of optics, Republicans simply cannot be um, – they have to be held to a higher standard than Democrats just because on the right, the right is outnumbered 10 to 1 in the media. So Democrats can make all kind of missteps and you know commit all kind of fraud, make all kind of political blunders, and the media will not cover it. Because like I mentioned on the story on Coca-Cola, Newsweek is the only one that's covering it, the Hunter Biden story. Newsweek was the only one, the only mainstream source that covered it. Other sources, they may have covered it temporarily, but they immediately uh, squashed the, the story and, and in collusion in um, collusion with social media were able to crush it. Ted Cruz cannot – you can't afford to make mistakes like this because here's the thing. So the media is always camped outside of Cruz's house to see how he's going to react. He and his family leave. The media – obviously the media is going to notice that they're headed out. His dog is inside. They don't have any heat in their home. The dog is inside the house. So now the media has got, uh, got a really juicy story. Not only is Ted Cruz and his family skipping out of freezing Texas to go down to sunny Cancun, but they left their dog in the house to, you know, to freeze. And this really tugs at the heartstrings of childless millennial women who basically treat their dogs as their children. And this, doesn't, this just doesn't play well with voters. This is any, any sliver of hope that, that Ted Cruz might have had. That he might have been able to get a foot in the door with millennial voters. It's just it's gone. OK, it's, it's not there anymore. And then yeah, the excuse he uses, well, my kids wanted to go down to Cancun and they wanted to go on vacation with some of their friends. So I just wanted to be a dad and go down with them. I'm sure there's a lot of Texas dads that are like, hey, my kids would like to go down to Cancun, too. I'd like to be a dad and go down and join them. I don't have the money for that. 
So the, the whole thing is just, it's terrible from an optics standpoint. There's, there's no silver lining to this. Cruz needs to retire. He does not need to run for re-election for the, his Senate seat in 2024. He does not need to run for the presidency. The, he's Right now, he's, he's fantastic on many issues. But as far as, uh, a, from a PR standpoint, Cruz is dead weight on the Republican Party. Objectively speaking, man, what is it with Republicans and abusing dogs, man? You know, between Mitt Romney <laughs> yeah. and Ted Cruz, maybe they're onto something. I don't know. But yeah, I, I always said he he clearly is he's a legal scholar. I think Alan Dershowitz did say that Cruz was the most brilliant student he had ever had in Harvard. I think absolutely he, the best way to describe him is he's just like Ben Shapiro. He is intelligent, but he's not smart. Correct. I think he'd be fantastic. As a nominee for Supreme Court, a I could picture the Senate, even most Democrats voting in favor of him just to get him out of the Senate because they can't stand him. <laughs> but if that doesn't work out, eh, maybe make him attorney general or something. I don't know. Or I think kind of something you suggested. He could be like a legal scholar at a big think tank like the Heritage Foundation or something. Yeah, he doesn't need to be. I don't think he needs to be in politics. He doesn't need to run for office. He's just not. Yeah, he he just doesn't have it in him, man. I mean, he, he it was easy enough to get elected in Texas as a Republican because hello, it's Texas, right? I mean, a lot of people can get elected in a state like that. It's pretty easy. But he has he has his strengths and he has his weaknesses, and his weaknesses far outweigh the strengths, in my humble opinion. We could just just let him retire. Let I don't know. Let Alan West run for that Senate seat or something. Wouldn't that be incredible if we had Alan West in the Senate <laughs> from Texas? That would be legendary. But. Yeah, I don't know. I just I, I have friends who are hardcore fans of Ted Cruz, and I want to like the guy, but I don't know, man. His, I, I can't. His try, like, okay, the beard looks good, but it's an improvement. The, the just it's like he tries too hard. He's one of these guys that just doesn't fit in. He's just too nerdy. He doesn't fit in at the party with all the football players, but he goes out of his way to try to fit in, to sound cool, to use their to use their term terminology, use their expressions, and it just comes off as. Just don't. <laughs> just, sorry, sorry, Ted. Just, just don't. Just don't. You're, you're making things worse. Yeah. Even most Republicans in the Senate don't like him, from what I understand. Like he has a couple. He has his BFFs that are uh, Mike Lee from Utah and because he has no filter. <laughs> exactly. He has no filter, and very few who will join him in this kind of quasi-libertarian group, along with, of course, Rand Paul. But the funny thing is, Rand Paul, as adjacent as he is to Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, who are kind of outcasts socially in the Senate. Rand Paul still is really good friends with Mitch McConnell, and he gets along well with them. And that could, of course, just be because by virtue of the fact they're from the same state, so that's just going to be natural. But it proves that Rand Paul, as as awkward as people joke about him being, he's better at working people mm-hmm. than Ted Cruz is, which really says a lot when Ted Cruz – when Rand Paul has better social skills than you. I'm sorry, Ted. I'm sorry, but that's just enough. You yeah, know, to, you, to make optics worse, while Ted Cruz was headed to Cancun, you know what Beto O'Rourke was doing? What was Beto O'Rourke doing? He was distributing uh, supplies to Texans. Like oh. he, was, he was working with he was working with uh, with volunteers to go around and a total photo op, obviously. Oh, of course, a total but... photo op, but it works. And you know what AOC was doing? Well, she was, was raising two million dollars to help struggling Texans, and she went down to Tech. I believe she went down to Texas herself and helped down to Houston and helped. Struggling Texans who were freezing in the in the in the cold weather, providing food, again, providing uh, warmth and everything. And again, she, a photo op. It, obviously, it, it, but, but at the end of the day, in politics, photo ops are how you win elections, or how you win hearts and minds. And you got to understand, there's a lot of apolitical people out there that don't know anything about politics, and they see their senator, who is a Republican, going down to Cancun. They see the Democrat that he beat out on the in the freezing snow helping people. It's just it's, it's optics. A lot of this is an optics war, and the you know. The media already paints Republicans as and people on the right as being heartless. They don't care about people. And then this, it's just no. Cruz needs to be done. This needs to be. He doesn't need to run for re-election. He needs to go work in a think tank. He needs to go contribute to the intellectual side of the right, not the political side. Yeah. And you know, maybe, maybe Ted Cruz isn't that intelligent after all. Because you know, if I was a serial killer, if I was one of the most infamous serial killers in American history, the last thing I would do is run for Senate where everybody can see my face and know my name. <laughs> for those of you who don't remember, this was an absolutely hysterical meme from the 2016 campaign where like a bunch of Redditors, I think it was either Reddit or 4chan or one of those, started this joke that Ted Cruz is secretly the Zodiac killer, even though he was born after the last Zodiac murder took place. But it was done ostensibly for the purpose of conveying how unlikable Ted Cruz was and how people just do not trust him and they find him to be just shady. In how can we convey he is untrustworthy and just something is off about him in the in the most hilarious 
obviously facetious way. Let's compare him to the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> so it, it was a joke that people jumped onto, even though the original creators of the joke were like, yeah, this is a joke. It's obviously a joke no one takes seriously. But yeah, I, I do think that's one thing I like about Cruz. He has poked fun at the joke himself. He has jokingly said like, oh, for Halloween, I'm going as myself. You know, and he picks showed a picture of the zodiac sign or something like it's just he's able to poke fun at it so i can respect that much that he's got a certain level of self-awareness but obviously not enough yeah not enough if this is what sinks him then so be it it'll clear the path open a little bit more for the actual front runners we need like ron DeSantis, josh hawley maybe donald trump jr who knows unfortunately that is all the time we have left for this episode everybody so hope you guys enjoyed it It was definitely a fun one. And again, rest in peace, Rush Limbaugh.